This is Crossroads, a Get Religion podcast. Some sounds from a recent school board meeting in Dearborn, Michigan, where parents were protesting pro-LGBTQ books. Just some context. Dearborn has the highest percentage Muslim population of any U.S. city. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. Is this clash between Muslim parents and their school board a political story, a religion story, or both? Well, I think I'm going to take it one step further than that. When you get down to the brass tacks of this, this is an education story that is being shaped by factors in both politics and religion. And when I say it's an education story, I would say that it really pivots on debates about parental rights when they send their children to public schools. And in public schools, of course, you're dealing with schools that are funded by taxpayers, which means you're supposed to somehow magically be able to come up with solutions that will please all of the current warring armies in American life and culture. The novelty in this particular story is that instead of the usual suspects, that's another word for white evangelicals, instead of the usual suspects in this story, what you have here are parents who are practicing Muslims. Now, you do have some progressive Muslims on the other side of the fight, but the folks who are upset and who are in that room are everything from kind of normal American kind of second-generation Muslim families to people who would be, shall we say, visibly Muslim in terms of women you know, in hajib and whatever else. So you have the entire breadth of the Muslim community and world represented in this story. And that makes it novel. It makes it somewhat threatening, I think, both to educators and to the journalists who, as a rule, back public educators in almost any dispute. And there's one other factor, and this is where we begin to lean into the politics of it. If you analyze the Democratic Party, and the polls I've seen or the studies I've seen focus on delegates to the Democratic Convention, there is no group with more outright clout in today's Democratic Party than public school educators and teachers, teachers unions to be short. So the bottom line here is how do you come up with a solution on this hot-button topic that pleases both religiously conservative parents and, to be blunt about it, LGBTQ activists who are active in teachers' unions or have the support of teachers' unions? And I think it really is pushing us closer and closer to a showdown in American politics over school choice and 
probably at the level of the Supreme Court, some kind of decision about whether states can offer tax rebates that allow parents, liberal, conservative, whatever, to make more choices about their children. So you can see the religion and all that. You can see the politics and all that. But at the bottom line, the bleeding edge of this issue is about parental rights. And let me jump ahead and kind of in my thinking about this. Listeners should think about it this way. What if you had, I hate to pick a religious group, but let's say liberal mainline Protestants are Unitarian parents, progressive, liberal, pro-LGBTQ parents. What if you have those parents requesting that schools deal with these kinds of issues, both in their libraries and in required readings in classrooms? And at the same time, you have conservative religious believers, whether they're Orthodox Jews, whether they're evangelical Protestants practicing Roman Catholics, et cetera, et cetera. You have parents on the other side who want their children, at the very least, exempted from any school activities where they're going to be exposed to what amount to moral arguments that oppose the beliefs of the parents. I'm sure listeners who listened have been listened to Crossroads for several years now or many years now are familiar with me referencing James Davison Hunter and the book Culture Wars. And this is definitely a culture war story. It's, uh, culture wars is going to be a phrase that shows up in almost any story about what happened in Dearborn and what's happening in other parts of America in battles over drag queen events, story hours at public libraries, et cetera, et cetera. The word culture wars, the term culture wars, I almost pulled a Joe Biden there, the word culture wars, that's two words. The term culture wars gets used now for almost any sort of argument about morality and religion. But it really helps to remember how James Davison Hunter, a sociologist of religion at Virginia, how he defined that term in his groundbreaking book, back in 1990-91. He said that the definition of culture wars is that you have a battle over the actual nature of truth, not politics, but moral truth. And he defined these as battles between two groups. One he called the camp of the orthodox, and the other he called the camp of the progressives. And the camp of the orthodox are people who believe that there is such a thing as transcendent, eternal truth. And the camp of the progressives are people who believe that truth is constantly evolving. And what is true for you may not be true for me. What was true 2,000 years ago certainly isn't automatically true today. There is no such thing as a transcendent absolute truth other than the absolute truth that there are no absolute truths. What I found interesting when I first read that book, it was right before I started teaching at Denver Theological Seminary, what I found most intriguing about his thesis was he noted that there are liberal Catholics on one side and conservative Catholics on the other. There are liberal Jews on one side, conservative Jews on the other. You have American and progressive Baptists on one side, you have Southern Baptists and lots of independent Baptists on the other. And you can do the same thing with Lutherans two different schools of Lutherans. You can split evangelical 
Episcopalians and charismatic Anglicans off from the liberal Episcopal Church. You can do conservative Presbyterians versus liberal Presbyterians. We now have a split occurring at the global and national level among conservative Methodists and liberal Methodists. And now, this story notes, we're beginning to see a divide between progressive Muslim believers and their supporters and traditional Muslims of various kinds. Hunter said that American conflict over religion used to have vertical lines between these different groups, Protestants versus Catholics, Jewish believers versus conservative Protestants, whatever. He said that isn't what we're seeing today, and that's not what we're seeing in this Dearborn story. We're seeing a horizontal line that cuts through all different religious groups. And the essential question is, are there eternal truths? And if so, how do school leaders and library leaders deal with parents who have different absolute truths on a subject like sexuality? So that's a long, convoluted, maddeningly intro to this thing, but that's all at stake in this story and in some other stories similar to it. What did you make of the local coverage in the Detroit Free Press that ran under the headline LGBTQ and faith community yeah. struggle for unity in Dearborn Hamtramck? Well, I saw it primarily as they painted this as a political story more than any other. What we have here is a threat to Democrats. We have Republicans riling up Muslim believers, getting them to join in with those dang evangelicals to take on their schools and try to control the content of the schools. Meanwhile, the school leaders are trying to find some way to create a system. I've looked at some of the actual guidelines for how this works. They're trying to come up with a system where parents have more control over what their children are exposed to, or especially are required to study. And like I said, you can't possibly please both of these groups. Now, what I thought was interesting in that actual Gannett report from Detroit was it perfectly illustrated a common problem. It's very easy in these stories to quote kind of outrageous things that are said by selected parents and religious activists who are opposing what the schools are doing. It's very easy to have those quotes. They liven a story up, and I'll stress they're valid content. The problem is that you all you can say is the parents are accusing the schools of having content that is lewd or obscene. What you can't do in these stories is actually show images from the books, and you can't actually quote the explicit content of the books that are being debated, because you can't put that in, quote, a family newspaper, unquote. So the story ends up being very unbalanced for the simple reason that you're not allowed to quote and display this kind of material in public media. Uh, you may have seen videos from school board meetings where you had this exact problem, where parents stood at a podium and started reading material that their children were either being asked to read or required to read in their classes, and then the school board would shut them down for reading obscene books in public. 
but then they wouldn't agree that the books were too crude to be able to read them in public places. Yet at the same time, you were saying that the books were not too crude to be used in middle school, high school, and in some cases, elementary school classrooms. So it was a pretty typical story. It disappointed me in all of the usual ways in that, for reasons both logical and illogical, it was only half of the story. What did Axios do with the story? Well, Axios is a very specific type of publication. Axios is all about the URLs. Their whole goal is in, say, 400 words to give you a summary of what happened in the event and then to have URLs that take you out to other websites with a lot of material. For example, if you saw the Oxios report, which once again stated it in political terms primarily, the headline was GOP unites with conservative Muslims in Dearborn. If you go down through this, there are URLs that take you out to a lot of different sources, you know, to hard materials showing you flyers that were being handed out in the debate. And at the end of it all, there's a link to the actual, an actual PDF of the final guidelines that the, that the school board is debating and trying to create. But once again, what I noted in this is you didn't see, for example, links say to, I don't know, blog post by Rod Dreher and others who have dared to actually put explicit images on their website from these books, or maybe images where key parts are obscured with filters, but you can still get the gist of what's happening, or direct quotes. So once again, it's a, it's a, it's a battle being fought where only one side of the conflict is able to have its arguments put into public print. So I would say that Oxios was better in that it got you out to some websites and other things related to the debate where you could seek out additional material on your own and kind of read things by your own choice. They have more freedom as a web publication, obviously, than a public newspaper owned by stockholders in Gannett. I thought it was better, but once again, a fight in which it's impossible to quote the key arguments from both sides because the arguments on one side are considered too crude and too um, maybe even blasphemous to be aired. The Associated Press, they saw fit to issue what they call news verification. It's a fact check on a spoof of The Atlantic that was circulating online. Yeah. And I'm sure you saw the spoof and then AP's correction of this. I did not see the AP correction. I saw the spoof originally. The spoof was uh, an Atlantic headline with the picture of the meeting in Dearborn. Right. And the headline was uh, the evolution of white supremacy, the subheading in Dearborn, Michigan, Muslim parents who oppose teaching pornography to children become the new face of the far right. Now, the word pornography should have let everyone on that this was satire. Exactly. A and... But it it made the rounds on online, many believing it because they think, well, it's the Atlantic, and yeah. this is something that, you, that might actually sand pornography yeah, appear we, there. We live in an era when it's very hard to know what's satire and what isn't. Of course, the people at Babylon B have created an entire separate Twitter feed called Not the B, where they print items 
that look like they should be the bee, but they're not. They're actually true. And the most controversial feed on Twitter right now, at least among Twitter employees for sure, of course, is libs of TikTok, in which people are get banning. T- Twitter continues to ban material from circulating on Twitter, which are actual unchanged videos drawn from Twitter and TikTok. So it's okay to put the material out in social media, but it's wrong and dangerous to put it out in social media in a feed that is primarily read by critics of the content. So it's okay to use it for rabble-rousing on one side of the issue, but not for rabble-rousing on the other. Once again, this is the age in which we live. Rod Dreher made an interesting point in his piece about Dearborn when he, on Twitter, for sure I know I saw him say this, he basically said, when are traditional Christian parents from the mainstream, not from religious right activist groups, but what is it going to take to make ordinary parents this upset about these trends? And this leads us to another element of the story, which is at the heart of it, and that is that many parents, quite frankly, do not know what's happening in their public schools because policies exist that prevent them from knowing. And the ultimate here, if if we have a kind of a religious liberty battle going on over whether or not you can limit the rights, let's say, of gay Episcopal parents, to, you know, to control what their kids are exposed to while simultaneously protecting the rights of Southern Baptist parents over what their children are exposed to. If you have that going on, behind that is the ticking time bomb of the issue. What about school policies in Canada and in parts of America where the school is actively cooperating with children who believe they're trans to hide their gender transition steps from their parents, to hide the fact that at school they're now identifying as male, they have a different name, they have different pronouns, and the school may even say, allow them to keep a change of clothing, you know, um, breast binders and other things like that in their lockers to help them, you know, pass as a different gender at school, then they change clothes before they go home and they keep it all a secret you know, from their parents. I was When I read that story, I was reminded of something I used to witness up in the mountains of Tennessee in very conservative towns. My family would be eating at a restaurant on Friday night when we were driving up into the mountains, and you would see teenagers come into like a McDonald's or a Burger King or something like that. And they would come in dressed quite modestly, normal kids kind of going out for the night, and then they would vanish into the bathrooms with, like, bags over their shoulder, and they would come out dressed in clothing that you absolutely positively knew their parents would not have approved. Very risque outfits, all kinds of outrageous slogans, their hair done a different way. And the whole point was the restaurant was kind of serving as a safe ground for them to change identities. At the heart of this Dearborn story and a lot of other fights about public education and libraries right now is, can we use tax dollars to support public institutions that are playing a similar role in the lives of children and teenagers? Actually, 
aiding them in their efforts to hide new identities from their own parents. Boy, it is a tough First Amendment and political question. So conservative creedal Christians are often critical of their treatment by the news media compared to Muslims. Is this a fair assessment? Well, yes, but I would say that Muslims validly are terrified of the media as well for the simple fact that they're in a position in many cases of having to publicly oppose Muslim extremists that may attack other Muslims. I mean, we we should always remember that one of the most controversial things that happened during the Trump administration was they made an effort, remember, to limit people coming out of areas where the Islamic State was in control or active. And this was, including in this Axios piece, this is frequently paraphrased as saying that the Trump administration wanted to keep Muslims from entering America, fleeing to America. When the actual, if you dug down in it, like we did at Get Religion, if you dug down into it, you could see that there were actual Muslim minority groups, Shia Muslims, were in some cases clashing with um, other sects of of Islam, and Shuni was in control, and, you know, I could go on and on. But my point is, Muslims are frequently persecuted in foreign lands by other Muslims. So I think a lot of Muslim groups here in America are afraid to stand up on issues that will get them criticized. So they kind of fear the press for uh, a different way than other religious groups do. But in, in this case, it's, it's a, important to realize that the Council for American Islamic Relations, called CAR, that is the mainstream power group in terms of Muslim media relations in America. And a lot of Christians would openly complain about many of the activities of CAR. That was the actual Muslim civil rights group that informed parents at this meeting of their religious and parental rights. So the big guns are out in this particular debate in the Islamic community. There's no question that the participation of a group like CAR, the Council for American Islamic Relations, is going to have an impact on how this story gets covered because this is the major, most powerful group on the topic working with the American press on behalf of Islamic believers. You have often made the distinction that in the media, by and large, there are kind of good Christians and bad Christians. Do do similar categories exist in the media narrative for Muslims? Of course, and that would be the, the very point of James Davison Hunter drawing a distinction based on clashing concepts of truth, absolute truth, eternal truths, versus merely drawing distinctions in conflicts between religious groups. So there are good Muslims, and the good Muslims are the people who believe kind of that truth is evolving and we need to go along and we need to make sure that our religious group is not portrayed as being hostile to certain types of religious conduct, to gender identities, etc. And then there are bad Muslims are the people who believe no. The Quran speaks very clearly on issues of marriage and sexuality. Our tradition says the following, we must defend our right to lead our own children to religious beliefs that are consistent with what our family stands for. Well, that's the same difference between 
good Jewish believers and bad Jewish believers, good Baptist, bad Baptist, et cetera, et cetera. It's the essence of the J.D. Hunter culture wars thesis. America is now divided by truth claims more than by individual religious traditions or specific religious faiths. What I found interesting in the Detroit Free Press, the Gannett story, was that there seemed to be a struggle in the middle of the story to make sense of just the facts of the thing. And let me read the pertinent part of the middle paragraph. And he's talking here about the leader of the Muslim protest. During his talk, Al-Mughedi, who is Muslim, praised Stephanie Butler, a Dearborn parent who is a Christian, and helping lead the efforts in Dearborn to remove some books and other materials from the Dearborn schools. And it goes on but for about another four paragraphs, quoting him in praise of this Christian compatriot in the fight to protect their children. But I don't know how that fits into the media narrative, because this guy who's protesting here might fall in the category of bad Muslim. Maybe it fits because Stephanie Butler falls into the category of bad Christian. Yeah. Let me give you a parallel for our listeners to think about. One of the biggest political stories in the last two years, and something that I've written about frequently at Get Religion, and we've talked about it here on Crossroads, is the changing political patterns among Latino voters. And we are very close at this point to having what amounts in the media to good Latino voters and bad Latino voters. And when you dig into this, into this changing pattern of Latino voting, what you usually find is high numbers of very devout practicing Catholic Latinos are even more so evangelical and Pentecostal Latinos. And I observed, if you'll recall, I said that these may be the very people who put Donald Trump in the White House in 2016 by helping swing the state of Florida. And nothing could be more ironic than Donald Trump ending up in the White House because of Latino voters. But we're seeing an exact same coverage pattern in Latino voting and in the increasing number of Latinos who are voting Republican, quite frankly, but voting conservative or backing conservative stances related to even issues like immigration in some forms. I want to stress that the immigration there is very complex, especially between legal immigration and illegal immigration. So good Latinos, bad Latinos frequently comes down to secular Latinos versus religious Latinos. So we have similar divides occurring now within American politics. And frankly, the media is struggling. And I think the reason is about 20 years ago, we started seeing more and more media reports that stressed that the future belonged to Democrats, primarily because America was going to become a nation that was less white, to be just perfectly blunt about it. And this rainbow umbrella of ethnic and racial groups were going to automatically vote for the Democratic Party and vote for liberals on moral and social issues because that's what they were doing 20 years ago. That's why it's very threatening to suddenly hear that maybe the Muslim vote isn't automatically going to go one direction. Maybe 
due to birth patterns and everything else, maybe the Jewish vote is getting more complex in some parts of America. Maybe the Latino vote is getting more complex. When I lived in Baltimore, I noted that in a lot of issues related to sexuality in schools, the black vote was actually way more complex than the local newspapers and television stations wanted to admit. And when you dug down into that, what you found in many cases was African Americans who were attending megachurches, large evangelical and charismatic churches, were suddenly getting active on conservative causes. I can't stress it too often. This was the heart of the James Davison Hunter thesis on culture wars. And I see nothing that indicates this isn't alive and well in American public and political life and not getting stronger all the time. Good Christians, bad Christians, good Muslims, bad Muslims, good Hispanic voters, bad Hispanic voters. That's a lot of balls to keep in the air at one time. But once again, what the line that divides through that is between people who, even if they don't have the same eternal truths, obviously evangelical Protestants and the Dearborn Muslim organizations don't have the same view of Jesus of Nazareth. Obviously they don't have similar views even of women's rights or apparel or a lot of other things, but they believe that it is possible for religious believers to follow and defend the eternal truth claims of their faith. When that happens, all of a sudden you have a Southern Baptist on the same side of an issue as an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. You have a charismatic Episcopalian on the same side of the issue as an Assembly of God's pastor. You have a Missouri Synod Lutheran pastor on the same side of the issue as maybe the Muslim groups in town. Interesting things happen. And on the opposite side of that issue, you have the liberal Muslims, the liberal Jewish believers, the Unitarians, the mainstream Episcopalians, the Evangelical Senate Lutherans, and the list goes on and on. It's the dominant trend that I have covered in my experience as a religion reporter. When I wrote my 10-year anniversary column, which would now be 23 years ago, when I wrote that 10th anniversary column, it was about the James Davison Hunter book, Culture Wars, and an interview with him about why his thesis was still so relevant. Well, 23 years later, the DNA of the Culture Wars thesis can be seen in all of these stories out of Dearborn. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thanks. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.